I think it has to do with this intellectual overexcitability, this highly engaged intellect that makes you start questioning things more readily than most people would. And, and more so, you get that courage to speak up because you see that, that something is wrong. Not just in your own life, you start there maybe, but isn't that what so many people are going online to do and to express the problems they see? And those people who are told not to do that just get fed up. When they're shot down, they don't stop and say, oh gee, actually, I guess, I guess I'm wrong if no one has even stopped to listen to them and say, well, why, why are you applying consciousness? You must be some kind of therapist. I am some kind of therapist, and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Wynn, a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. Hi, Jesse. Welcome to the podcast. So good to have you. Thank you for having me on. It's great to be here. Yeah, so we're excited to connect because we both are interested in the subjects of intelligence, creativity, neurodiversity, and human potential. And Mm -hmm. so you are the editor of Third Factor Magazine, an online resource for gifted and intense people. I love that you use the words gifted and intense um, going through (laughs) positive disintegration. They're they're not exactly the same, but yeah, a lot of overlap there. Yeah. Gifted people can be intense, right? And and gifted can, can mean a lot of different things, right? And you're especially interested in this idea of positive disintegration, which I'll ask you to share more with our listeners about. I'm especially interested in talking to you because I think we're both women on the edges of creativity and consciousness. And when you are different, creative, gifted, intense, have some exceptional abilities, maybe combined with some exceptional impairments, (laughs) such as executive functioning, (laughs) which is something I struggle with, it takes a lot of courage to put yourself out there because what you're bringing can be so different. But I think one of the ways that you help people is by providing resources and encouragement to help people shine and embrace what's different about them, would you say? I love the way you put it. That is, yes, that's a really good way of putting it. I used to just put out writing and I realized what people wanted most of all was connection to other people who had those shared experiences. I do. I want to encourage people to have courage. And I've had to do it by having courage myself, (laughs) which, you know, when you publish Mm -hmm. your stuff, when you go on podcasts, when you share things about yourself, everyone sees all your flaws. uh, But they also see good things, too. You know, you you can't you can't dwell on that. They don't see your flaws as much as you suddenly see your flaws. But and that's important to this population that is unusual. It has been made salient to them through their life how they are different, and so they may have become especially sensitive to it and thought maybe being different is is by default bad, that you, you know, get that message a lot in society, but there are some ways of being exceptional that are actually good. 
And the theory of positive disintegration is just one way of sort of exploring the the process of coming to realize that and making peace with certain things and sorting out the difficulties uh, of that sort of path. I love that you talk about that feeling of being exposed when you start putting yourself out there, because of course, as someone who's new into podcasting, I can relate to that. You're a little further along the journey than I am, but it has its ups and downs especially this stage in anyone's career when they're starting to get more into podcasting or writing or having some kind of public presence. I mean, most people who get into this do it because they have something to say, they have some value to offer, but you're right that there's that initial learning curve and the fear that comes with it. I know for me in my first few months on Twitter, going from not having a Twitter presence at all to suddenly having several thousand followers uh, it was really hard to sort out the distractions and to have some basic kind of boundaries or principles of how do I engage. I also think that, you know, there's that saying, I think it's something like, to whom much has been given, much is expected. Yeah. And there's a sense that when you do show up with that sense that I have something to offer, it's really easy to be put on a pedestal but when you're on a pedestal, it's a lonely place and the only way to go is down. And I'm of the belief that compassion can only exist between equals. So even if you're not bringing any arrogance to having a public role, it's very easy to kind of project onto anyone who does take a public role that they are superior in some way or that they think they're superior in some way. And when we see someone that way, we don't have compassion for them. We don't feel that human connection. And so I think part of our challenge is that we want to have those human relationships and we want the value that we have to offer to land with people at kind of a heart level. But it's so hard because when you show up with any kind of skill, sometimes it automatically feels like there's a wall between yourself and the audience. Do you relate to that? Yes. Yes, I do. But the thing that jumped out most for me was the nature of the internet, especially when you said Twitter, which is a certain cesspit as the all of us who are on it, but stay on it, will say that. And you obviously get something. It's it's a way to connect with people and deliver your message as a, as a content creator and find other people who connect with you intellectually, which is a thing that a lot of you know, ideators and thinkers really want. They may not have people around them who want to talk about their ideas. But one of the things I have learned is that when you connect with people over an idea, that is a very fragile connection if there's not mm. a full relationship behind it to back mm -hmm. it up. Kind of like when you said that compassion only exists between equals, I think it also only really exists when you see the full person. Otherwise, people are filling in the gaps of yeah. the, you, they, there's a little paper cutout of you that is your Twitter presence or your online presence. And they fill in the gaps with all their other assumptions about anyone who uses the word, say, gifted or anyone who has X or Y opinion, whether they're, you know, politically not like you or some identity group or anything like that. And so you get a lot of anger and negative emotions directed at you because the internet also allows that to be shared very easily. People come to the internet to express those things or get coaxed into expressing those things because that's the environment. And so you really have to be prepared to take that on and realize that it's not you. They are not reacting to you. They are reacting to a cutout of you based on yeah. the little bit they know about you. And of course we do that, right? Because we're 
instinctual creatures. And for a very long time, it's been necessary to be able to size up another person within a fraction of a second. Is this friend or foe? Is this someone I'm going to mate with or someone I'm going to fight with? And so we rely on these really surface characteristics. And of course, in our ancestral past, those were our characteristics that we could assess mostly visually. But in the age of the internet, those are characteristics that involve using a certain word or phrase or being associated with a certain person or community. That's because that's all we know about a person. Yeah. And I like that you bring up the word gifted as one of those triggers because I can already hear, you know, from the moment that we bring in the word gifted, I can already see people's heckles going up. Like gifted can be a dirty word, right? It's one of those words that if you use it, people do tend to assume that you're talking about some kind of superiority, right? And then that triggers our gut moral instincts around equality and fairness. Yeah, absolutely. I know you've gotten, you you know about the trans issue and how sensitive that is, which I bring up only to say that, because I've also waded into that, and I have had as much animosity directed toward me for talking about giftedness as I have for the trans issue. <laughs> I've had people block me for using the word gifted, and I have had people tell me they can no longer refer to my magazine. Well, I should say one, one person uh, tell me they could no longer refer people to my magazine because I expressed ambivalence about the word gifted. And the reason I have ambivalence is simply because of how it is received. I don't want it to get in the way of what I'm talking about, which is not a claim to superiority. We can, and we don't think about athletes, right? Like here we are, as we record this, the Olympics are on and you see these incredible skills by these athletes who are truly gifted. They are athletically gifted, but we don't assume that they think they're better than us. Um, maybe because we we don't think it's a necessary skill to be uh, able to land a quad jump at the uh, figure skating competition. It's cool if you can, but there's something about, well, intellectual gifts, academic gifts. Those are slightly different, right? Academic, but it's it, it comes out of a school context. So academically gifted, which takes us back to this place, school, where we all developed insecurities because this is how we were being evaluated as kids in our formative years. And some people were gifted and some people weren't. And it's just, oh, if, if I'm not gifted, does my opinion not count? People mm -hmm. feel like their opinions don't count. They want to be heard. And they're very sensitive to status. We're all sensitive to status. And I think mm -hmm. it only gets more so in a place where we're all competing for attention, like the internet, where lonely people go and try to interact. So I get it. I get why people don't use the word gifted uh, or don't like it. And I've even tried to come up with alternatives, which we can go into if you want. But yeah, just just to not keep to not derail the conversation that I want to have. But in a in a certain sense, you can't run away from all of it. You have to be able to talk about this is this is the thing I'm talking about, and it is relevant in certain ways. Yeah, and there's a part of me that wants to level the playing field or kind of reach out to people who do have that judgment about the word by saying, let's talk about what's difficult about being gifted so that so that people can have yes. more compassion. And I'm not sure if that's the direction mm -hmm. to take things in right now. I know that I also wanted to invite you to kind of define these terms, define positive disintegration. And maybe in that part of the conversation, we can talk about what's uniquely difficult and what what we want people to understand in a compassionate way, whether or not they identify as gifted or any other label, 
about people who do have extraordinary abilities. Yeah, sure. Well, okay, which word should I start with? I could talk about gifted and then loop that back into positive disintegration. Well, I think gifted is the word we've been talking about, so we might as well. All right, let's start there. I actually realized when you asked me that, that I have not defined gifted. I have used gifted as a hashtag, a Google word for people to find me. And I don't define it because I, I figure, you know, whatever it means to you if, you, if you feel that you have a gift that you want to use, because that's one of our mission, part of our mission at Third Factor is to empower people to use their talents that they feel they're not able to use or they're struggling to develop because they don't have anyone to engage with to hone those skills. You need a teacher who knows how to use that skill to help you develop it. It doesn't do to just be, you know, the gifted kid in a class where there's no one for you to engage with. Otherwise, you're a big fish in a small pond, and then you go to a place where there's a lot of other gifted people, and you sink. You don't swim um, because it's shocking to you in the the social change. But, I mean, now that I'm pressured to define it, it would be you were placed in a gifted program, but not everybody. I have a lot of people who were not placed in gifted programs. So I often use the term highly intellectually engaged, people who like the life of the mind, who ask questions, who analyze, who observe. If there's a gifted program and you were not placed in it, but you engage in those behaviors, you are a third factor person. That is really my crowd. And gifted is just the way to find those people. That Again, the hashtag to put on my Instagram posts and people click on it and they find me. But I actually have, uh, one of the terms I have come up with to be more descriptive, because gifted is a value judgment, you have to know, we all know that it means academically or intellectually gifted, unless you add a qualifier like athletically gifted. But it's that's an assumption that we make. Uh, so to make it explicit what I'm talking about, I came up with this term abstract intense because a lot of this life of the mind is a facility for abstraction. You know, words and numbers are abstractions. And so if you are able to do that, you'll do well on the tests that get you into gifted programs. And so that affects the way you look at the world. Like my sister didn't make it into the gifted program, but she is did great at nursing school and rose to the top of her class and is very concretely gifted. She never liked the discussions that my family had about politics and, you know, big lofty society level problems, but she's the one you want in the room if you have some really practical problem that you're trying to solve. And she's really smart. You know, this is not By saying I'm gifted, I'm not saying I'm smarter than you. Like, I I swear that I'm not, which, of course, people don't believe it, and they they will hear that. But that's why I like to bring up that story about my sister, who, again, you'd want her around rather than me in, in most cases. So I call it abstract intense, to focus on this facility with abstraction and either intense abstraction or the added bonus of being this sort of intense person which very often goes with giftedness. Not all the time. There's a lot to unpack there, but let's just put that on the table. Intense gifted people, big overlap. And that brings us to the theory of positive disintegration, which is a theory developed by Kazmierz Dombrowski. Dabrowski is how it would be typed out if you want to search for his name. And it, it describes the path of this sort of person. Often gifted, but again, doesn't have to be placed in a gifted program an intense person who is somehow maladjusted to his or her environment and maybe tries to get along and tries to get along and then just can't and has some sort of disintegrative episode, whether it's a mental health crisis or just decides to make a big change, but is like driven to disintegrate, but doesn't stay there. There's a path out that this type of person, this 
intellectually, emotionally, and creatively, imaginationally, intense person will very often follow. And positive disintegration is that process. And if you read about the theory, you see all these interesting little insights about, oh, yeah, that's how I think. That's my experience of the world. Wow, I've never seen it reflected that way before. And that's why I decided to start a magazine on it, to explore that path. Wow. So what are some of the key themes or chapters along that path that people tend to go through? The basic way to answer that question is Dabrowski laid it out in a series of levels. It's not a great way to lay it out. It suggests the sort of hierarchy, which I personally, there are people who will disagree with me, but I personally don't like that. I'd rather have these as like different paths. But his levels one through five, one being a person who just remains integrated, doesn't have this disintegration. The second level is something called a unilevel disintegration, where you are disintegrating between looking at two paths and you cannot determine which one is higher and which one is lower. So it's very hard. You just, you have a crisis and you become very anxious and it's a dangerous path. It's a different dangerous place to be, according to Dombrowski. Then there's level three through five. And this is what the theory, where its magic is, right? Where it really has something to offer. Level three is the point where you perceive one of those paths as higher or lower. And level four is you have, you have started to take action. You Level three, you don't, you know there's a higher or lower path, but you can't always follow it. You've got blocks. You've got learned behaviors. You're too concerned about what other people think, even though internally you know that it's wrong or it's not right for you or whatever objection you, you, you see. That's level three. It's called spontaneous multi-level disintegration. Then level four is organized multi-level disintegration, where you are, you've sorted out your values, you've reflected on what you're doing wrong, because it's not just saying, oh, I'm gifted and I'm superior, so I'm always right. That is not what it says, though people come to me sometimes kind of thinking that because they're so wounded. And you got to backtrack from that. And you sort out the values and you think, ah, I was wrong there, but I was right here. Or I can make a change and I can be right there. I can live in line with my values. That's level four. Level five, I personally see it as an an asymptote, right? You approach it, but you never quite reach it. Maybe figures like Jesus and the Buddha maybe reach level five. Some people say level fives are common. Michael Pikowski is a voice in this Dabrowski's theory. He collaborated with Dabrowski, and and he says there are level fives living next door. Maybe you just don't hear about them because they're not necessarily drawn to public profiles. I know I, for one, am sorting things out through this magazine in part for myself. I want to have conversation with people because I have parts of me that are at levels two, three, and four. And that's the way you should think about these levels, right? Not that you're like leveling up. I beat that boss and now I can advance to the next level in the video game. It's not really it. But there are these sort of stages that you progress through roughly. And, and you can be more, more of you can be lined up with, with level three or four and less with level two. That's the process. Going from unilevel disintegration to realizing the multi-level path to actually following it, figuring out how to follow it. What I'm hearing in this is disintegration in the sense of disintegrating from society or from groupthink in order to embrace and develop something that is within that you might not see mirrored in your world. So there might not be a language for it or a social context for it. But I think I'm hearing you talk about the path of kind of finding the courage to listen to something 
internal, even if it conflicts with your social environment? That's a huge part of it. And in fact, our name, the third factor, comes from this concept of factors of development to make you who you are. Dabrowski said that the first factor is nature and the second factor is nurture, basically. What's your innate biological potential to be who you are? What is the environment shaping you? That's the second factor. And the third factor is what comes from transcending those things and imposing agency, an active, authentic conscience that you you thought about, that went through your excitable intellect, right? That's mm-hmm. This is part of the theory, right? He talked about the excitable intellect and imagination and emotions. Those are the people who go through positive disintegration. That's what the third factor is, is all about, the, the choice to move away from usually the second factor, the environment in which you are told, no, don't say that, don't make trouble, the nail that sticks up gets hammered down, and don't bother people, which is what a lot of <laughs> questioning mm-hmm. people or people with big feelings, you know, we're, mm-hmm. we can be annoying to have around. And we don't want to be annoying. Part of reflecting on ourselves is seeing where we really are, maybe stepping where we shouldn't step or you know, the relational space, negotiating with another person. And it's very easy when you are the sort of person to either decide, well, I don't care what anyone thinks, or, oh my gosh, I'm going to worry so much about what other people think and to to figure out how to walk that line Mm -hmm. and stand up for what needs to be stood up for, even if it's not popular, but to really understand why you're doing it. So Jesse, what you were just sharing reminds me of a concept from Brett Weinstein and Heather Hying their book, A Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century. They have a chapter on culture and consciousness. Are you familiar with some of their narratives around that? You know, I haven't read the book. I would be very interested because I know they say some things that are are interesting and thought-provoking. But yeah. yeah. So they talk about culture as a vehicle for transmitting information that doesn't have to be consciously rendered and consciousness as the frontier, and when each is more appropriate. So they talk about when things are running smoothly, cultures can transmit what's already running smoothly and working for a group of people without having to reinvent the wheel. Whereas Mm -hmm. when there's a need for change, when things are breaking down, or we need to invent new solutions, that's where consciousness really comes into play. And that's the the awake individual who's not taking for granted the assumptions of the culture. And so I think what you and I are talking about is that consciousness piece. Each of them has their role, but in order for us to move the frontier forward of novel problem solving, we have to move away from culture and from what's already taken for granted in order to develop those new solutions. I love that framing. I have not heard it before, but it is, yes, it's exactly the same conversation. And some of us just seem more disposed. It's not just, you know, I talked about gifted people. It's not just gifted people. There are plenty of gifted people who are very comfortable with the culture and have not been presented with a situation that seems to require consciousness at that level. They could be using their intelligence to do some sort of like scientific experiment. They devote all of it to that and the culture is otherwise serving them wonderfully. Whereas you don't have to have been, you know, gifted to question things, 
but maybe something happens to you that you you have seen for yourself, oh, something's not right. And you've thought it through and you've tested it out. Or maybe you haven't. Maybe someone just jumps in and has a contrarian streak. That certainly happens. But I don't know what it is. I think it has to do with this intellectual overexcitability, this highly engaged intellect that makes you start questioning things more readily than most people would. And, and more so, you get that courage to speak up because you see that, that something is wrong. And, or you see, not just in your own life, you start there maybe, but in, the, in society. I mean, isn't that what so many people are going online to do and to express the problems they see? And those people who are told not to do that just get fed up. They, they don't, when they're, when they're shot down, they don't stop and say, oh, gee, actually, I guess, I guess I'm wrong. If no one has even stopped to listen to them and say, well, why, why are you applying consciousness? So that's the tension I see there. The, um, but yeah, because, because culture is, is, it works really well in most situations and it's, you can rely on it for quite a lot of things. We would go insane if we had to question everything. So I, I like that frame a lot. I'll, now that I know about it, I'm going to have to read that and probably apply it. Mm. Yeah, it takes both, right? We have to have enough mm-hmm. existing culture that we can function. And individuals on the edge of the culture need the stability that the culture does have in order to meet their basic needs. This conversation is making me think, too, of what I'll call for now sort of relative and absolute morality, Right. So we know culture is a great vehicle for transmitting the relative morality of a given group of people and the set of social mores that work for that culture in that place and time. And shame, for instance, is one of the tools that keeps that morality in place. So having taboos around certain things that would break the culture serves to carry that culture forward into the future. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the moral principles of any given culture are absolutely correct. And this is easy to see from the outside, right? If you're looking at a culture, for instance, to to bring up something really gruesome, like female genital mutilation, that is normal in certain cultures and abhorrent to other cultures. So we see that the relative morality of one culture can clash with the relative morality of another culture And who's to say what's absolute, but we can say if we have some really general principles like protecting people from harm, that any kind of mutilation would be, (laughs) would come out pretty, pretty low on the absolute morality scale. And I think that that shame and that fear, what do other people think of me? Will I be punished for my views or actions? is coming from that instinctual place of I have to protect my relationship with my culture and tribe so that I can continue to belong and so that I can continue to have all the protections and resources that keep me going from the society I already belong to. But I think sometimes people confuse the role that shame plays and that social anxiety plays in maintaining their moral position relative to their culture. They confuse that with some sort of violation of an absolute right and wrong when really the culture doesn't necessarily indicate an absolute right and wrong. And so that process of finding the courage to do something different, I think a lot of that comes down to the insight that what my tribe, my culture, my community says is right isn't necessarily universally right. And I think I'm safe enough 
I think I still have enough protection from my tribe and resources for my tribe, or at least I hope so, that I can venture out and do some things that push the limits because there is a greater morality beyond what my culture is doing. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And it does come from that space of feeling safe enough. I'm going to repeat, you and I chatted about this before, but for the sake of the podcast, during COVID, I felt really anxious. Not just, well, because of the COVID, right? Because I could get a dread disease, but it wasn't that. I mean, probably that didn't help. But looking back, it's because I have been so isolated. And so I took online drama a lot more seriously than I would have if I saw friends every day and I knew they had my back Mm -hmm. or I met people in person who could agree to disagree. And I have now, since, since the pandemic has abated somewhat, or at least we've just gotten more tolerant of it, I am around friends who do agree, disagree with me about certain things, but they still come over to my house and hang out with me because they're real people who know the full thing, uh, my full self, or at least a lot more of me than they would know if I was just an online person and or an online connection. And I can now engage in things that I used to be afraid to talk about online or I talked about and got very much more shaken by the response than I would now. And so you you do, I do believe that it's not just a, a weakness of one's character to not be able to overcome that social anxiety. I don't mean like pathological social anxiety, but that level of anxiety that we all have, the risk of ticking off your culture and going against the relative moral beliefs. But it depends on relationships. We're a lot more willing to work things out with people who we know and have a bond with Whereas on the internet, you just unfollow. The minute someone says something that you don't like, click, I'm done with that person. I actually hate them. I liked them yesterday, but now they're triggering my negative feelings. And so much of it does, you get these signals from your body that are just telling you danger, 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 danger. And you have to figure out, well, is that a useful signal or is it a misfire? And that's where I think a lot of, you know, using the positive disintegration lens a lot of that comes to that, that level two, the unilevel disintegration, which is the higher path. Am I really right? Is it really worth me taking a risk? Am I even right? I mean, I think you, you do have to have some humility. You can't just be the knee-jerk contrarian who thinks everyone is always wrong and you're always right. But it takes a lot of work between the emotions and the intellect. Or to use the, the Maslow's pyramid, right? The basic safety needs have to be met for you to do this. And so I wouldn't fault everybody out there who's saying like, oh man, I'm, I'm, I know I should speak up, but I'm afraid to speak up. Maybe I hope that what I just said could be useful in getting to a place where you can speak up or mm-hmm. accepting that you are in a precarious situation. That is sometimes true. And you know, you, you, I, I hear this from a lot of people. They, they, those are the people who send you the, the private message of support when you speak up and say, thank you, thank you, thank you. I can't speak up, but I'm glad you did. Man, that's such a real phenomenon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> people don't know there are silent majorities out there mm-hmm. uh, that really are glad when you take on something in the public sphere. But I'm, I'm wandering away from the original mm-hmm. point that you made about the absolute versus relative morality. So, yeah, I'll when stop it- there. <laughs> When it comes to those situations where someone feels like they can't speak up, but they're grateful you do, I think that's so tricky to receive those messages because on the one hand, I want to believe people 
at face value that they are really making an honest assessment of the risks and benefits of being in their particular position. You know, could they lose their job or the ability to feed their family, mm-hmm. for example? So I have compassion for people who feel scared into silence. But on the other hand, it doesn't always feel like a compliment and it doesn't always feel like support when other people say what could be translated as, I don't have the courage to do what you're doing. Keep putting yourself out there on a limb all by yourself. And when you get your head chopped off or when you fall off that limb, I will secretly be grateful that you were a martyr. (laughs) So sometimes the response is like, if you appreciate what I'm doing, maybe it can serve as inspiration to you. You know, I've had people reach out to me saying, Stephanie, you should be aware of this issue. You should do something about it because they know that I have the verbal skills or the the moral compass to navigate something. And my response is, well, you're the one in your position seeing this thing. Maybe it's an opportunity for you to do something about it in your own way. But I have two other responses to things you shared here, if that's all right. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. So one is you mentioned. Well, uh, let me let me interject. Go for it. Quickly, I just want to add that that there is such a thing as cowardice. That is another mm. thing you have to sort out. If you are just yeah. being a coward and you you do have a moral responsibility to act, it is not just, you know, if you are totally a wreck over something, fine, I get it. But you don't want to stay there. That is one of the messages of positive disintegration, that being a disintegrated mm-hmm. mess and not stepping up when you need to, I mean— the theory talks about responsibility, mm-hmm. and and that's also there, too. So, yes, I've been in where you are, but not Thank as badly you. as you have been. And I get it. I get what you're oh, saying. Oh, I don't know about that. So, sorry. Go ahead. I, <laughs> yeah. I mean, cowardice is real. And mm-hmm. I don't want to shame anyone listening to this, but I do want people who are on the edge of saying something unpopular to feel encouraged and to just imagine a world in which everyone in that silent majority, such as yourself, were to find that courage, we'd be able to solve a lot of problems. And it does come down to a lot of individuals making the decision to be as brave as they possibly can. And we've both survived this. So it does, it's okay. You can get through it. It's survivable. And when it comes to weighing the risks and benefits emotionally for yourself of taking that risk, there's a lot of good that can be said about the feeling of lightness and exhilaration and empowerment that comes from living on that edge of being truthful. I understand not everyone feels they can afford that because of their circumstances, but it is really a heavy weight to carry living with a, a sense of being in a straitjacket or a zipper on your mouth. Those are those are the images that come to mind for me. And I think a lot of people are so used to living with that much tension that they don't actually realize what a negative impact it's having on them to feel so repressed. So there is good on the other side. Anyone who's listening to this, who's feeling some resonance and thinking there's a part of me that wants to live more authentically and more bravely, you might, just as much as you're concerned about the things that you stand to lose, there's also a lot to be gained. And the relationships that you form when you're being real are so much more authentic than the social approval you'll get when you're not actually being yourself. That is absolutely right. In my experience, it I feel a lot freer and less less prone to being irritable or exhausted. You know, once you've once you said the thing and you know that you don't have to tiptoe around people. Mm-hmm. So yeah, completely agree. Mm-hmm. And fi- just start. My advice to someone in that situation would be start by finding one or two friends who do have your back. 
and you can build a lot from there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if everyone around you is thinking in a certain way that deep down you don't connect with, there are other places to go. I hope you've been enjoying this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. If you like what you're hearing, now's a great time to like, subscribe, follow, rate, review, or share. You can also support the podcast by visiting sometherapist.com slash shop, where you will find goods and services I have personally curated to support your well-being and enrich your life. We're just building the shop, so check back periodically and feel free to suggest recommendations. All right, now back to the show. Okay, so two thoughts on what you were sharing earlier. You talked about the knee-jerk contrarian. And earlier, I think you might have been talking about that same personality type when you were talking about people who are kind of self-righteous and bitter because they've been hurt or inconvenienced in various ways from being different and being, let's say, the smartest person in the room. (laughs) And it, it reminds me of a friend who is very gifted and very different and lives a pretty eccentric lifestyle far away from a lot of people. And he told me about what it was like to be in preschool and this rage that he felt as like a three-year-old where he, pardon my language, but his inner dialogue was like, yes, I understand that's the letter A. You told me the last five times I got it the first time. Yes, two (laughs) plus two equals four. Okay, what do you think I am? Some kind of fucking idiot. You know, he was having that experience at the age of three as just someone with a really high IQ from birth. And and you get to a point as an adult where you can regulate your emotions better. But if your experience during those crucial developmental years is one of feeling enraged and just so different from everyone else that it's crazy making, then of course that's going to be really emotionally scarring. And of course those folks are going to be used to being fed up with others' perceived incompetence. And that's actually one of the reasons that I personally think it is important to tell young people when they are gifted. A lot of people are afraid that if you tell young people they're gifted, it'll go to their head. I feel concerned that it'll do other things to their head if you don't, because it can feel like gaslighting when there's this massive difference between how you think And how everyone else around you thinks, you're like, am I crazy or is this redundant? Am I crazy or is this obvious? What's going on here? And you just feel so alone. And I've had some good conversations with young people who I could tell were really gifted where I explain, you know, I think most people aren't intellectually capable of what you're capable of. And here's what you're missing about others because oftentimes giftedness does come with some sort of, you know, twice exceptional conditions such as autism or ADHD, right? And there are people with autism who are absolutely brilliant and have wonderful cognitive empathy and can really think through another's perspective, but they don't understand manipulation. They don't understand when something means two different things simultaneously because of the context. And they really suffer a lot because of that. They're so authentic and sincere and they mean everything at face value and they get misread. And I think it's important for those young people to receive some coaching and mentoring around understanding the differences between how their brain works and how other people's brain works. And yeah, that's going to include telling them what's really exceptional 
about them. And I think that that will help with the overall emotional health of these people and help them not become bitter, angry, knee-jerk contrarians who always assume that they're smarter than everyone. I completely agree with you. And I think that is where that comes from. It's just like, yes, you should tell a kid if they are gifted and deal with it. Give them what they need to know. The idea that with great gifts come great responsibility. Like start teaching that as a young age, but don't deny it. Don't let them come up with their own emotionally soothing, maybe antisocial sort of way to tell it to just because they are constantly trying to manage their negative feelings. I've met those people. And that seemed, that is a story that really rings true to me. And I sympathize with that. If you never got treated with, I want to say respect, respect for how you are experiencing the world, where you are in school. I mean, I, could, I, I didn't have that experience. I was fortunate enough to be in a multi-grade classroom in a Montessori school from kindergarten through third grade. I was in the same classroom with five-year-olds through 10-year-olds. It was great. It was perfect for that. But I can very much understand why someone would come to just doubt what everybody says because they had good points when they were younger and people just brushed them off. You know, that leaves, I'm I'm no neuroscience, but it seems to me that will do something to your neural pathways. Mm -hmm. So yeah. It's lonely. And the earlier you can, yeah, the earlier you can start talking about something like this, whether it is an intellectual gift or a autism or ADHD or whatever it is that that person is going to have to struggle with that makes them different from the norms Yeah, talk about that earlier and give some healthy ways to grapple with it. Mm. I also wanted to come back to something you were saying earlier about how the isolation of the pandemic triggered this kind of instinctual fear of being ostracized from your tribe. It reminds me of how, coincidentally, right before the pandemic hit, I read The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt, and he talks about the psychology of morality and the moral emotions, instincts, the moral palette. And one key emotion associated with morality is disgust. There are things we find abhorrent morally that trigger very similar feelings to anything physically disgusting that would trigger an instinct around uh, protecting ourselves from contamination. And I remember reading him referencing a couple of studies, and I'm not going to represent these completely accurately. So for the actual information, see the book. But what I remember about these studies was that in two different trials, when some kind of basic visual cue that was a subconscious reminder of issues of contamination was present in the environment, people became more morally rigid. I think there was one study in which the same study was conducted, but in one hand sanitizer was in the background and the other it wasn't. I think there were maybe a similar study where in one people were asked to wash their hands before doing something and then the other they weren't. And so this was before the pandemic. And these were just tiny little alterations to the environment in which our subconscious instinct to protect ourselves from contamination was being slightly more activated in one situation than the other. And even that little difference affected people's moral rigidity. So when the pandemic hit, I really started thinking a lot about the emotion of disgust and the role that that plays in our lives and how it's connected 
as you're saying, with shame and tribe and the walls we put up between ourselves and others. And I just really wonder what the last two years have done to us psychologically in that department. I'm worried about that. I don't tend to be a, you know, the sky is falling pessimist. I think we'll get through most things, but I am really worried about that combined with the effects of the internet and how we talk to each other and how that amplifies our language and our emotions and all of that sort of thing. But I I love what you said. I've read that book too, The Righteous Mind, and I love how you brought that in. I remember that study. And there's just, in the context of a pandemic and what that does about, it, it will tap a very basic level of purity, right? But then the different sides of the vaccine debate, you know, there's another subgroup that's getting their disgust triggered in the opposite way to the people who are saying the vaccines are going to protect all of us. And that is a, a real, I mean, it's fundamental, right? It's doing things on that subconscious level, the same level where I was feeling, oh, why can't I engage with people? I'm really scared. I can't speak up. I wasn't consciously scared. I was consciously sitting here being like, have courage. Courage is your value. Say what you need to say. And I'm like, oh, but my body is signaling something. So I don't know. It's like someone could do very well coming up with some sort of study or program, not just about the vaccines and the the debate over that. I'm not just talking about that, but what this sense of disgust that is triggered, whether by the fear of a germ or the fear of a contaminated outsider, Mm. that's going to leave a mark on us. You know, the pandemic will eventually go away, but for our generation this is going to impact the rest of our life and our social interactions, I I think. Well, when you say the pandemic will eventually go away, I wonder if any official governing body, such as the CDC or the WHO, will ever actually say the pandemic, for all intents and purposes, is over. I have a suspicion, as a layperson unfamiliar with how they work, I have a suspicion that they're not planning on saying that, that this is now endemic and that variations of COVID will continue to evolve and they'll continue to evolve in the direction of becoming milder. We know that that's how viruses evolve and they will be less and less of an actual hazard to our health. But I think we've gotten so accustomed to living this way that our whole way of working with disease has changed. Someone was pointing out recently, remember two weeks to flatten the curve? You know, remember when <laughs> we had this short-term mindset of we just have to make some changes for a little bit to reduce the rate at which people flood the hospital system so that it's not overfull, so that our healthcare providers don't all get sick and burn out so that people don't die needlessly, that anyone who needs a bed or a respirator can have one. That was the intention. And I'm no expert on this, but I think we've done a pretty all right job of that. But it's not about that anymore. It's not about protecting the healthcare system from being overloaded. It's about protecting ourselves from any level of risk of catching the virus at any time, regardless of how healthy you are, how strong your immune system is, whether you've already gotten COVID, whether you've been vaccinated, whether you're taking care of your health. It's this fear that's taken over our lives to the point where 
I don't think we're making decisions based on a thorough cost-benefit analysis anymore. I think we've just become so accustomed to basing so many of our decisions off of that fear of contamination because it's been such a defining feature of our lives for the past two years. And I think we've forgotten to weigh that in comparison with other moral instincts and other human needs. That's a very thought-provoking point. And I don't, I don't think I disagree as I, as I listen to you. I mean, I have heard, supporting your point, someone in a magazine I was reading saying, oh, actually, the pandemic will never end. We'll, prob- we'll have to basically, uh, or it won't evolve, it won't necessarily evolve to a more benign sort of version, like just be re- used to this for the rest of your life. It's become a moral basis discussed and that that's affecting us. And so I do think we really have to consciously engage with that possibility. I feel fortunate in having had another very fear-inducing experience happen to me at the same time as the pandemic, in fact, triggered by the pandemic. Let me tell you this little story. My husband, who just turned 40, did not know how to drive a car because he grew up in an area with good public transportation. So he never learned to drive a car. And he had been taking the metro to work every day and the pandemic hit. And he didn't want to take the metro to work. And I didn't want him to take the metro to work. And so I said, well, okay, I'll drive you. Two weeks to flatten the curve, right? I'll drive you for two (laughs) weeks. And it went on and on and on. And I put like 20,000 miles on my car driving him, spending two, it was, it's a long drive, you know, to get him to work. And he's like, you're going to learn to drive. And it's on the Capitol Beltway. If you've ever been to Washington, D.C., I didn't grow up around here, so I'm not used to this density of traffic. And it's terrifying. I confess to being a very nervous passenger. Part of this overexcitable super stimulability means I do have a tendency toward uh, overactivation, anxiety in certain frightening situations. I haven't you know, it comes up in certain situations, right, in, in my life. And having that hit at the same time as the pandemic really made me think about how, okay, um, not right at the beginning, we didn't know enough, but eventually we are going to get to a point with this endemic COVID that it's like, well, I, I could drive, I could die in a car the way I was terrified. I, I couldn't stop freaking out with my husband in the driver's seat and I'm the responsible driver supposed to be teaching him, you know, how to do it. And I was terrified and it was, it was a flaw, right? This is not a cute little, you know, oh, thing we're going to tolerate because we have mental health awareness. Like, no, it was, I was causing a problem with my fear and it was hindering him and making him a more nervous driver. And I had to get a grip and it was very hard. Like, don't, I didn't totally manage it, but I, I did manage it enough through sitting there and actively thinking about the fact that people learn to drive. And yes, there are car accidents. And no, you can't get a guarantee of safety. But do you want to go back to driving him every single day? Because that's your other choice. And I think we're going to have to face that too. You, you can die in a car crash and you're going to risk getting COVID, but your alternative is to stay home every day. And cost benefit says, I want the benefits of connecting with people. Because if I stay here all day by myself and never interact with people, then I'll become a panicked wreck who is isolated and feels ostracized from the social group. Mm-hmm. It's easy for me to know what to pick. And I have another little story to tell. Mm-hmm. 
quickly to show how far we have come. Uh, I was living in Japan in 2009, and that was when H1N1 or one of those other epidemics was going around in Asia. And I happened to travel to Singapore for a vacation at that time. And the flu, H1N1 was there. And they were doing crazy things like, or the point is, I received these as crazy things at the time, like taking my temperature before I went in an art museum and writing it down or running in their big famous Ferris wheel and cleaning the cars before you could get in on every single rotation. When I told that story before the pandemic, people were like, oh my God, Singapore, like, wow, look at their culture. That's just nuts. I can't tell that story anymore. No one would think that's nuts. (laughs) And that's how much we've changed. Wow. Yeah, and the things that we've lost are harder to define. I think when we're making judgment Mm -hmm. calls about what should I do, if you were to give someone the options of go to your friend's birthday party and get COVID or don't go to your friend's party and don't get COVID, I think most people would say, I'll pass on the illness. I can see her another time or (laughs) wish her well another way. Yeah. But the decisions that we've been making have, have not actually been like that. They've been a series of decisions over time about missing out on one and then another and then another and then another social opportunity, all not to prevent guaranteed illness, but to prevent chance of illness, it starts to kind of skew the ratio. But the things we're missing out on are harder to define. It's it's hard to place a value on just seeing the barista's smile, right? All those little things that were a part of our daily life, but that helped us feel safe. And yet when you take them cumulatively, we know that that sense of social connection is one of the greatest factors in protecting health and longevity. There's a study, I can't remember the name of it or the details, but it looked at a myriad of factors that influence well-being and correlated them with lifespan. And above Mm -hmm. Diet, exercise, smoking, drinking, above all of that, the two topmost factors were two different dimensions of social connection. One of them being, do you have that 3 a.m. friend? Do you have at least one person or a small group of people you feel really close with, like you can share anything? But the other being, do you generally feel like your community is friendly? Do you have, do you make small talk with people? Do you smile at strangers? Because those things really add up and contribute to that sense of well-being. Just like you were saying, COVID has done the opposite in the sense that not seeing people and not having those regular lighthearted interactions has really triggered, I think, lower mood and social anxiety for a lot of people. Yeah, I don't want to be cavalier about the risk of COVID. Like, I hope I emphasize that there are reasons to fear it. I am not a COVID denier of any sort. Like I'm, yeah. Me neither. There is a reason to skip those birthday parties. Right. But yeah, event, it, it does become this sort of gradual process. And I thought, I, I, another story, you're bringing up all these stories to illustrate things. So I, I live in Washington, D.C. right now, but I'm from Detroit. I lived in Detroit apart from the time in Japan until I was 30. So bulk of my life, uh, very much shaped by that. And I moved here, and I actually had more culture shock than I had in Japan, which says something about the Midwest and Japan. But, you know, people don't smile at each other here. Mm -hmm. And 
I was taking a walk in my neighborhood and I see a guy wearing a shirt that just across his t-shirt just says Detroit. And I look at him while I'm walking and I just naturally, hi, and said hi. And he said hi. And then we laughed because I think I, I think I actually was also wearing a Detroit shirt. And the two Detroiters like laughed and smiled at each other because just that little shift, again, the little shifts in your culture, if you're used to people smiling at you mm-hmm. and then you come to a place like where that doesn't happen, you will notice and you will wonder, is there something wrong with me? Uh, That was about the time I started Third Factor and some people came to me and started talking about this concept of twice exceptionality. And they're like, oh yeah, you know, have you ever looked into autism? Like, well, I'm not, I don't have autism. Then I had that happen. I'm like, I don't know how to smile at people. (laughs) Is there something wrong with my ability to like, no, it's culture shock. I go back to Michigan and I'm fine. And now I'm fine here, but it took a while to adjust to it. Mm. So it is like, we, we think we're going nuts because Mm -hmm. some little thing has changed and it's a thing that matters a lot. Mm -hmm. And I am noticing here how we, like when you reached out to talk to me, we didn't say like, let's talk about fear and anxiety. Let's talk, instead we were going to talk about like the experience of being gifted in positive disintegration, but it is amazing how often it comes back to mm-hmm. fear and anxiety. Mm-hmm. When you have felt different or unusual, that causes you to feel fear. When you talk about those little differences in how communities display friendliness or not, it reminds me of the difference between PDX and LAX. Have you been to those airports? You know, I actually have. Yes. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Anyone who's been to Portland's airport and Los Angeles's airport knows exactly what I'm talking about. Well, I actually was there at 630 in the morning. I was there at 630 in the morning and there was not a lot of people around. So I I guess you do have to explain. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Well, Portland has the best airport that I've ever been to. It is so comfortable and easy compared to other environments and people in Portland generally, at least until the last couple of years, things have really changed here. But this is a it's been a pretty friendly place. And mm-hmm. LAX is, in my experience, really crowded and unfriendly, and everything just feels harsh and cold and unwelcoming. And it's those little differences in obviously the aesthetics and design play a role, but also the the human culture of a place makes such a difference in your mood and well-being. I've been to both types of airports. Yes. <laughs> I know we were going to talk more about giftedness, and I also wanted to explore with you that article I sent you by Heather Hying. Where would you mm-hmm. like to go next? How are you sleeping? Sleep is a foundation of mental and physical health, equally important to nutrition and exercise, yet it's often the first thing to go during times of stress. Good sleep can help alleviate depression and anxiety symptoms, maintain a healthy weight and metabolism, protect your heart, and even reduce the risk of Alzheimer's. Yet still, a third of Americans struggle with sleep, and temperature is one of the main reasons. Before I got an eight sleep, I was already an expert in sleep hygiene and practiced what I preached to my clients. But I would still wake up overheated in the middle of the night and unable to fall back asleep for one or two hours. Adjusting the air temperature and blankets was not enough. The mattress itself was keeping me hot. But now, I'm sleeping soundly through the night and waking up refreshed thanks to my 8Sleep Pod Pro cover. The Pod Pro cover by 8Sleep is the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. 
It pairs dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking. The cover can adjust the temperature on each side of the bed individually for you and your partner based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. If you'd like to be more patient with your children, more emotionally stable with your partner, a fitter athlete, or more efficient at work, take it from me, a mental health professional. Improving your sleep is one of the best investments you can possibly make in your overall well-being and the lives of everyone you touch. Go to 8sleep.com to check out the pod and use the code SOMETHERAPIST at checkout to start sleeping cool this summer with up to $200 off your purchase. Even if they're already running another sale, this code will get you an additional $50 off. And yes, to my listeners around the world, 8sleep currently ships not only within the USA, but also to Canada, the UK, select countries in the EU, and Australia. All right, now back to the show. I didn't read the whole article, but you sent me a quote from it, which I think actually does kind of, yeah, well, we, could, we could dive into that if you want. So you sent me a passage that reads, Female competition, having had distinct selective pressures which have driven it underground, is less straightforward. Indeed, perhaps because opting out of a covert game could in itself be another kind of covert game, attempts to opt out will often be seen as competitive in and of themselves, thus creating a competitive situation when that was specifically what the woman may have wanted to avoid by opting out. Yeah. Pithy. That's true. Yeah. All right, let's dive into this. So that's a quote mm-hmm. from an, a recent article by Heather Hying on competition. I believe it might have been a two-part series. I think that might have been competition part two in which uh, she, mm-hmm. as an evolutionary biologist, talks about how men and women have evolved to compete in different ways, right? Men's competition being much more overt and physical and female competition being covert and social emotional. And I thought that quote was really interesting because she describes how as a man, you can opt out of competition and that might be received differently in different cultures, right? She described an instance in which a guy just says, no, man, I'm cool. I don't want to play basketball today. Right. And and that it goes over well with his yeah. peer group. There's also, of course, plenty of situations in which a man can't as easily opt out of competition without being put down or bullied for being weak or feminine or whatever. But even then, the the bullying or the putting down is also over. It's, it's in your face, right? Whereas as women, yeah. because we lack that physical strength that men have and because our brains are generally more, we have a more refined awareness of social and emotional cues, a lot of how women relate and compete with each other is more covert. It's more subtle and manipulative. And I thought that quote from Heather was especially interesting because she's describing that according to all of these subtle rules of these games that we play with each other as women, you can't really opt out without being seen as playing a different game, perhaps, or as maybe breaking the rules of the game or doing something that according to the rules of that game is offensive somehow. It's a lot harder to say 
no, I'm just not going to be manipulative or catty, <laughs> you know? Yes. Well, trying to be upfront is seen as, yeah, like you're asserting, because I talk about values, right? And trying to live by my values. And people who know that I talk about that, occasionally, like I've gotten in trouble with people in the this fear that in which I talk about that online, third factor. And it's hard to sort out what part of this is the internet, because I also think a lot about the internet and it, how it affects people, as I said earlier in our podcast. But there is just this sort of like, by trying to act in a way that I think is upright, like say, oh, you disagree with me and I've upset you. Why don't I offer you a chance to write what you think? I mean, I will. I'll always do that. Like, why don't we engage? And then it's like, oh, well, you think you're just better than me because you're standing for this or that. I mean, whatever you do can be turned. That's just one example. Whatever you do can be seen as this sort of like, we criticize virtue signaling, but you can call anything like that a, a virtue signal. And you're just trying to say, hey, like, I don't like the way this is going. I'm just going to try to do what seems right to me. And the game that we're sort of wrapped up in, it's not working for me. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, and when I was in high school, I just tried to opt out entirely. And you have to completely completely pull yourself away. Like, I am going to just opt into being social outsider, which is what I did in high school. I did not like the environment. And it was conscious. You know, I I didn't feel like, oh, I can't play this game. But it was like, I don't, don't want to play this game. And I mm-hmm. spent my entire high school career in a massive depression because I just, I hated this. And I didn't, I never wanted to project, like, Well, okay, probably there were times in my life where I wanted to be like, no, I'm the morally righteous one. Of course I felt that way. But, you know, when I when I was aware of this game being played, it it bothered me. And I but then but then I asked myself, like, how many other people feel just as bothered? And that's the real struggle when I come back to, like, how do I engage with these people? How can I get around it? How Mm. do they not see what I'm what I'm doing as part of a game? Because we just are so used to games mm-hmm. being played that everything, not everything, but it it things can get taken as games when mm-hmm. they're not. And mm-hmm. especially in these environments where we don't know each other well and you're filling in gaps. That reminds me of the subject of autism, especially in people with high IQs like we were talking about earlier, because I think there are a lot of situations in which people with autism who have difficulty reading social cues don't understand that there is a game being played or don't understand the rules of that game. Mm-hmm. But I think there are just as many situations where someone either has autism and a high IQ or they don't have autism, they just have a high IQ. And it's more like, oh no, I understand there's a game being played. I just think the game is stupid. No, <laughs> I don't want to play. <laughs> no, I understand yeah. why people, I understand why people in my culture do things this way. I just think it's dumb. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, I think- just want to opt out. I get it, but I don't like it. Yeah. But yes. And then unfortunately, you know, we talk about high IQs and giftedness, but we don't, we can't figure out a way out because mm-hmm. this is our culture and we are swimming in it. We are like the fish in the water. And we may be the fish who are like, I think I'm in water. I think water is a mm-hmm. thing that exists. Yeah. But yeah, you can't get out of it. Well, I think you're right to point out that sometimes when you stick to your values and you have that sort of sense of integrity and commitment to virtue that's been built up and practiced over the course of years, 
like you're saying, it does come across as virtue signaling or it comes across as sending a message that I'm morally superior to you because I'm standing on principle. And it's hard to find a way out of that. I think that being a representative of standing on principle triggers people's insecurities about ways in which they might not being be being authentic or ways in which they might not be really acting according to their higher values. And then there's that insecurity. And, and when we feel insecure, we want to punish the people that have made us feel insecure because we want to bring them down to our level. We don't like seeing them on that high horse, regardless of whether that's the intention that someone like you or I might be carrying into that interaction. And I have a hypothesis that continuing to engage in those interactions can get worse and worse. And I I have a little insight into how that works, which is that I think that when we treat someone poorly, when we assume the worst or we're crass with them, we want to believe that that action is justified. Otherwise, we feel badly about ourselves, right? Now, if the person we're treating poorly continues to show up in a virtuous way, where they're really not actually giving us anything to legitimately hate or oppose, then we have to continue justifying to ourselves, continue to reconcile, okay, this person who seems virtuous is someone I'm treating badly. And so the cognitive distortions just get worse and worse. Rather than backing up and going, maybe I made an error judgment and this person's all right and I owe them an apology for being rude, Instead of doing that, we just kind of dig our heels in more because we want to defend our original premise, which is that this behavior on our end was warranted. And so we just, the distortion gets worse and worse to the point where where we're really misrepresenting this supposedly virtuous behavior. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of speaking from the perspective of, of someone who might engage in that sort of dynamic with someone like you or I, you know, because I think some traits that you and I share in common is we're both principled people who are intelligent, who have gone through that process of positive disintegration. We've found our courage. We found our values and our virtues and we stick to them and we bring those into a variety of situations, right? So of course, we're going to be kind of prime targets for this playing out of these really primal emotions and it it can be lonely and it can be hurtful. And I think sometimes we just have to extract ourselves from that situation because it's not going to be in alignment with our personal dignity to get involved in some kind of battle or to engage in the way that a rude person wants us to engage. And yet if we stick around and continue to behave in a virtuous way when we're being mistreated, then we're really just giving them more material for that increasing cognitive distortion that's going to just keep negatively misrepresenting what we're saying. And then we get hurt. And also as conscientious people, when someone makes us feel bad about ourselves, we we examine that. We go, what did I do to warrant this? Am I bad? Am I wrong? And we can spend a <laughs> lot of energy examining that. And it can be crazy making. Yes. So I don't think that there's any solution for how to deal with this. I just think that sometimes we need to just go with our first impressions, you know, give everyone the benefit of the doubt. But the moment someone starts to demonstrate that they're not really making an effort to hear what we're saying in a positive light, they're not giving the benefit of the doubt, 
their behavior isn't indicating that it that they share our values around understanding, compassion, clarity, you know, if they don't behave in a way that signals to us that they actually share those values, not just in terms of virtue signaling, but in terms of actually like living that in an embodied way. And I think sometimes the only choice for protecting our sanity is just to move away and disengage and look for our people, you know, spend that energy that we would spend engaging, looking for the people who are more resonant with our values and who don't feel threatened, but who actually feel encouraged or inspired or heartened to see the way that we're living according to our values. Oh, man. And that's why you should speak up when you have something to say, because that's how you find those people. But yes, I related so much to what you were saying. And I, I want to confess, because this is what positive disintegration, where you start with, where you move from that level two to the level three, and we have emotional overexcitability. That is one of the things that drives it. And so every human being, including myself, definitely, will think can think of a time when we acted in that justifying our negative emotions towards someone. I am examining my own self. There's this process called subject-object in oneself in the theory of positive disintegration. I wrote about it at Third Factor. Go over there, search for it there. I explained it. But it's basically, in a short version, seeing yourself as others see you, which, like you said, like, oh, if you are someone who wants to be sensitive to other people, you can just feel terrible about these things. And so the emotional intensity can go either way. Either you're resisting, like, oh, they've made me upset. They've made me unhappy. There must be a reason that they did, and I'm going to place it on them, rather than just realizing, oh, it's because I wanted them to do something, and they didn't want to do something, and they had the right to say no to me. Mm -hmm. They disappointed me. And that was not something that they mm -hmm. broke any rules by doing. They were allowed to disappoint me. And then I have seen, you know, having been through that, having been on that other side, knowing that I also was guilty of that, I try not to do it now. But I also, by, by doing that, I also have become less of a doormat. Because honestly, you know, I've been to therapists a few times in my life when I've just been like, I'm just really down. And I usually come to think like, oh, it's the environment or it's something that like I'm just accepting and I shouldn't. I should make a change in my life. Mm. And twice in my life, the therapist have been like, have you considered that you're a doormat? <laughs> Let's work on assertion and being having, you know, sticking up for yourself. Because mm -hmm. when I get disappointed and I felt terrible, I took it hard. I didn't want to do that to anyone else. And that's why I became a doormat. Mm -hmm. And now I try really hard not to be. And I say no to people. Mm -hmm. And I'm especially the sort of people, because in creative and gifted communities, these big feelings come up and then they get mad at me and they... Are, just think that, you know, I'm a horrible person and I'm not living up to those values. You claim to have values, but you're not living up to them. I'm like, let me explain the values, right? Like this, I'm not going to do X because of, I mean, of course you don't explain the values because then you do come across badly, but for myself, for mm -hmm. myself, it gave me the strength to say no to people and not be a doormat and do something that I then would resent and feel mm -hmm. bad about having to do. And just to have the I'm going to say groundedness. You know, it's a feeling in your body that you are rooted and not just, you know, wafting this way and that in the breeze. I'm going to say no, and it's okay that I say no. And I understand my values and why acquiescing to this or, you know, whatever behavior I'm being asked to do, I'm not going to do it. And I understand why, but I will be as courteous as I can be in explaining that. And, uh, and then 
you have to let the other person then deal with their feelings and hope that they are willing to do so. And, and if they are, stick with that person because <laughs> that's a good person. Uh, and if not, then they might still be a good person, but they might want to, that's a, a place to explore. I say that as someone who has been there too. Mm-hmm. I found it really useful. Well, I'm glad that you've had good therapists who have pointed out that you might be a doormat. A lot of people come to me struggling with self-esteem, self-worth. They've been told some hurtful things and they are looking at themselves. And another thing I see frequently is kind of this ongoing search for what is the lesson I'm supposed to be learning from this situation in which I'm feeling badly about myself. And I think it's one of the reasons that people stay in bad relationships. It's what am I supposed to be learning? What am I supposed to be doing differently so that I can be a better person? And I think sometimes the the unexpected answer is actually all you need to learn is how to walk away from things that make you feel bad without overanalyzing it, right? <laughs> I mean, there are situations in which maybe we should analyze why something makes us feel badly, it, especially if it's something we know is healthy, like exercise. If we feel a lot of resistance mm-hmm. to exercising or eating well or doing something that deep down we want to do because it's going to move us forward, then that is a resistance to examine and understand and find some ways of pushing through. But when it comes to being in a personal situation that you find soul-sucking or demeaning or in which you're being met with a lot of criticism that's not voiced with compassion— then sometimes the only lesson is I don't have to stick around for this. So I like that you kind of self-corrected as you were starting to talk about your instinct to explain your values further, especially when we know how futile that can be. Because I think I think sometimes we need to bridge that gap to validate ourselves, but but we need to not do that with the other person. We need to not engage with someone who is difficult to engage with But we do need to maybe do some writing, some journaling, or talk to someone we trust who we feel like knows us and loves us and process those thoughts, say all those things we want to say to that person who's being so argumentative so that we can sort ourselves out and then be strategic about what kind of interaction here is actually warranted. Also, I love that you talked about disappointment and that it's okay to allow other people to recognize that they're disappointed they didn't get what they want from us. And hopefully they will recognize that because that would be the emotionally intelligent thing to do. We also have to let go of trying to control that. Maybe they will not have that insight into their feelings. But hearing that reminded me of something I was reading in Hold On to Your Kids by Gabor Mate and Gordon Neufeld has to do with tears of futility. So they talk about when young people are developing and going through those early stages in toddlerhood of realizing you're not going to get what you want, like your ice cream cone fell on the ground, for instance, and you go through that initial stage of crying and protest because you want the ice cream cone to be back in your hand because your brain hasn't developed the capacity to understand, let's say, object permanence or whatever it is that's governing the the laws of this particular situation, but they talk about tears of futility as actually an important developmental step, that it's it's an indicator of emotional health in children, if I was understanding them correctly, to be able to recognize, 
oh, I didn't get what I wanted and I'm not gonna. This is futile. I'm disappointed. And now I'm going to cry about it. That's actually a really important indicator of emotional health. And so is the ability for a child to acknowledge their sad feelings. I thought that was really interesting. And what you said about allowing other people to be disappointed in us reminded me of that. That is fascinating. And you made me feel better about myself than <laughs> cry when I'm disappointed. Well, I'm a grown up now, but no, but it's true. We still have those feelings, right? And But you learn like, it's okay that I'm disappointed. The other person was allowed to disappoint me. I still have those feelings. How do I deal with them constructively? That's so much yeah. of what positive disintegration is. Yeah. And just because this particular person or this particular situation isn't going to give me the thing I want doesn't mean that whatever desire or need is at the core of that want is completely off the table. When I face my when I face the futility of the situation, when I grieve that ice cream cone, so to speak, then I'm free to move on and explore other options. All right, that ice cream cone is on the ground. It's not going back. Do I have the option to ask for another one? Do I have the option to get a balloon instead? We have to face the futility in order to take our power back and explore whether there might be other ways of getting what we want besides this one that's not working out. Well, I always come back to this, um, it's the serenity prayer, which I think is great even for those of us who are not religious, but it's, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And I just keep thinking of that when I'm writing for Third Factor, when we get article submissions, so often they're about that. So often that is the key theme. I want to change something. Can I find the courage to do it? Yes, do it. I mean, can I find, can I have the wisdom to understand I can do it and the courage to do it? Great. I love those stories, but just as important are the ones that you realize you had to accept something. Mm, yeah, and what you're talking about is key in what we call emotion regulation in my field, counseling psychology. I've, I've heard it said that anxiety is about trying to control what you can't and depression is about not controlling what you can. So key to, mm. to emotional health, right, is recognizing that difference, focusing on our efforts on the things that we can improve and trying not to put too much energy into th things that we can't because that takes away from the changes that we can make. That is great insight. I'm going to remember that. Well, I'm so glad that we could have this conversation today. It's been great talking with you. Where can people find you and your work? Well, Third Factor Magazine is at www.thirdfactor.org. That's T-H-I-R-D. We also have a Twitter, an Instagram, a Facebook, and we are getting a podcast up. Uh, it will be on the regular places you can get your podcast, Third Factor Magazine, YouTube, all those places. That's where you can find me. Great. Thank you so much. All right. Until next time. I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast with Stephanie Wynn, LMFT. This podcast is produced by Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix. Special thanks to the talented musician Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. At SomeTherapist.com, you can find more information on any topic, guest, resource, product, or service you've heard of here today. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram at SomeTherapist. 
If you would like to ask a question, suggest a topic, be a guest, or invite me to speak, you can email us at hello at sometherapist.com. You can also send us a voice memo with your question, and we just might play it. Of course, just because I'm some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.